We're talking this morning as we continue our summer series on um, special topics, topics that were of interest to people in Woodland Hills, uh, taking a break from the book of Ephesians. We're talking this morning on um, uh, the end times, the end times. We're talking end of the world, we're talking revelation, we're talking apocalypse, we're talking the beast, we're talking 666, that kind of thing. And you can get the rest of the topics on that purple insert that we had in the bulletin. Um, I think there's some that will be of interest to some of you. What we did is we just took the most frequently asked questions and we turned them into sermon topics. And then my job is to try to find something to say on that. Now, on the one we're going to be doing today, I have a, I'm going to read a passage and then we'll get into it. But I want to say ahead of time that I kind of feel a little bit like Forrest Gump in preaching this sermon. Uh, some of you saw that movie, and, and in that movie, Forrest Gump, who's an interesting fellow, uh, says a lot of times after he talks on something, he says, and that's all I have to say about that. And that's kind of how I feel this morning. I'm going to preach, and then I'm going to say, and that's all I have to say about that. And I know that to some of you, it may be a little disappointing. This is a great way to build up excitement for a sermon. <laughs> I'm really going to let you down today, but... If you came expecting the kind of thing that I said in that insert that I might be dealing with, you know, who is the Antichrist? When is the date of the second coming? What will the mark of the beast look like? And, and all that kind of stuff. If you want the inside information on the way to decode the book of Revelation and find the final definitive facts about how the end is going to wrap up, I'm afraid you're going to be disappointed. But, but I do have a perspective to give on it that I think is very important that maybe can shed light on the whole issue. I want to read from the book of Mark, chapter 1. Wait, 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 13. What am I thinking here? The heat is getting to me. Whatever goes wrong this morning in my brain, I can blame on the heat. Mark 13. And I'll read it starting with verse 32. Now listen to this passage very carefully. Jesus says, No one knows. No one knows about that day or hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like this. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know. Keep watch because... You do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, it's simply this, watch. Let's pray. Father, let your word come alive here, Lord. Let it have life, Lord. I pray, God, that more than anything else, it would impart balance. A balance, Lord, between having an urgency that we're in the end times Without, Lord God, a preoccupation with questions that we cannot answer. Be with us, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. I want to get to Mark 13, but I first want to lay a little bit of a background. Uh, And here I'm going to be wearing more the hat of a professor than I am a preacher. But I think it's an important background. In 1825, there was this young peasant woman. In Ireland, I think it was, maybe Scotland. She got a revelation, or at least she thought it was a revelation from God, and for all I know, it was a genuine revelation from God, but I don't know. And the revelation consisted of this. 
She found a verse in the Bible that no one had really noticed before, at least had paid much attention to before. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where, the, where Paul says that believers will go out to meet the Lord in the air. And the church, to the degree that the church had even commented on that verse before, usually took it symbolically. But she said, this is literal. This is going to be a literal thing. And she called it the rapture. And she said that very shortly, on the basis of a calculation from the book of Daniel and, and, and the book of Revelation, she determined that very, very shortly, all Christians on the earth were going to be sort of sucked up into the air when the Lord comes back. And she determined that the Lord was coming back two times. This was a new teaching. No one had ever heard of it before. The Lord's going to come back and take away Christians. Then the earth is going to go through a tribulation period. She thought it was three and a half years later. People thought it was seven years. Some people think it's 14 years. But they go through this terrible period of the tribulation. And then it would be Armageddon and the, and the beast would arise and the book of Revelation would kick into gear and then all pandemonium would break out on the earth. The new thing here was that she thought that the next thing to happen would be that believers would be sort of sucked up into the air. And she called it the rapture. Now most people at the time, most Christians at the time didn't believe her because it was a, it was a doctrine they'd never heard of before, but some did. And, the, and slowly that teaching spread throughout Europe. It came over to America, and here it really caught on. It really caught on. There was a certain man named Miller, and I forget his first name, but he founded a movement which, appropriately enough, is called the Millerite Movement. And Miller, looking at the uh, book of Daniel and looking at the book of Revelation, determined. He, he, he thought he could, con con could, could conclusively prove. Yeah. I'm having a stroke. Could conclusively prove that the second coming was going to be in 1842. And for about 15 years, he went around America preaching this doctrine, and a lot of other evangelists bought it, and they went around preaching this doctrine that the rapture of the church was going to occur in 1842, and for three and a half, or maybe seven, or maybe 14 years, the world was going to go through pandemonium, and then the beast would arise, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of people began to believe this thing, and in 1842, there was a high expectation for the Lord to return. But unfortunately, they were disappointed. A lot of people were discouraged. A lot of people gave up the faith. But what's most amazing is that Miller didn't. He went back to the drawing boards. He said, I must have miscalculated. And he went back and did his research. And sure enough, don't you know, but he found out the miscalculation. He was off by two years. Ah, that, that 70th week of Daniel screwed him up. So he redid his chart, and he determined that in 1844... On September, I think it was September 6th, the Lord is going to return. The rapture is going to occur. And he began to preach this, and everyone began to preach this. And there were more people who followed that doctrine than followed the first one in 1842. On September 6th, or whatever the date was, we, we know this from, from historical accounts, there was a high pitch among many, 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 many people that the Lord was coming back on that night. We know we have accounts of people who got up on their, uh, their rooftops waiting for the Lord to come. I guess they didn't think that God could rapture them through the ceiling or something. So they didn't want to bump their heads. So they got on the rooftops. Some people got up, went up on mountaintops. And when midnight struck, some of those people jumped off their houses. In fact, they had what they called rapture robes. And they, these all-white robes that they wore. And I don't know. But they, they, they wore these things. All around the country, people were doing this. And, and some people, you know, jumped off and broke their leg, jumped off houses. Some people on cliffs jumped off cliffs in order to meet the Lord. And they did. <laughs> but not in the air. <laughs> you miscalculated! 
Well, there's an incredible discouragement that came upon a lot of Christians at this time. A lot of people were just blown away but that, that they were wrong and they felt foolish and a lot of the unbelievers mocked the whole thing. But there were still some that thought, well, no, we've got to go back to the drawing boards and figure it out again. And since that time, hardly a year has gone by where somebody hasn't predicted the end of the year coming in that, the, the, end, of the, Lord, the end of the world coming in that year. 1875 was a big date. A lot of people thought the, Lord, the, the world was going to end in 1875. Another big date was 1914. As early as the late 19th century, some people were predicting 1914 on the basis of their calculations from Daniel and Revelation. And what happened in 1914? The First World War broke out, don't you know? And man, it seemed like it fit. Everything was lining up. They had their interpretation of the, the book of Revelation. One commentary I read said that they were, they were talking about the new cannons that can shoot a cannonball 25 yards. And surely this is the arrow that flieth by night that Psalms 90 speaks of. And everything just fit together. But it didn't pan In fact, the Jehovah Witnesses still insist that the Lord came back in 1914. Some then thought it was 1918. They recalculated and they got 1918. Some recalculated and they got 1925. Some recalculated and got 1939. In fact, one of the most fascinating things to do, if you really want to broaden your perspective on this issue, is go back and read some of the commentaries, especially the ones written in Germany in the late 30s and early 40s by Christians. Because if ever there was a time where the world seemed like it was going through the apocalypse, the second coming, the end of, of time, it was in the Second World War. Who fits the description of the Antichrist better than Adolf Hitler? Or some thought it was maybe Mussolini. And you read their commentaries and they're so convincing. They had the key, they had the code, that code they interpreted the book of Revelation, and everything made sense. The whole thing made sense. But of course, they were wrong about it. This has continued into modern times. 1975 was a big year when people thought the Lord was coming back, but it didn't pan out. A couple years ago, a lot of you read this book, I bet. There's a book circulating called 88 Reasons for 88. 88 Reasons. And this person gave 88 conclusive reasons why the Lord has to come back in 1988. And then it didn't happen. So he revised it. It was 92 Reasons for 92. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And just last year, there was this big radio evangelist, I forget his name, out in California, he's a national Christian radio person who wrote a book called 1994, or The Apocalypse in 1994, and he thought he could prove that the Lord was coming back in October of 1994. Book sales have dropped off significantly in the last year, but <laughs> for a while there it was really going. Here's the point, folks. There is really good evidence that this kind of thinking, there's always been sort of a preoccupation that people have had with the end of the world. And whenever things get a little weird or things start to change or you come to the turn of a century or a war breaks out or what have you, people are inclined to begin to try to figure out how exactly it's going to look, when exactly it's going to occur. This was really big during the Vietnam War in the 70s. The Christianity that I was saved into was very apocalyptic, meaning we were really big on the end times and it's starting to come back again now. And as we approach the year 2000, I can assure you that this is not going to subside in the least. I went to B. Dalton's bookstore and Walton's bookstore this last week and counted 13 different books on the end times written from a Christian perspective. I found seven that were written from a non-Christian perspective. It's not just the, the Christians who are getting kind of weird about the end of the world stuff. All over the place. Do you... Do you know how many books there are on Nostradamus? Have you heard of Nostradamus, this guy who supposedly predicted all these things? I was just paging through one of these books, and it was trying to argue that Nostradamus prophesied that Yeltsin was going to rise up against America. I mean, 
I'm sure that that is not what Nostradamus says, but that is what some interpreter of Nostradamus says. But there's this weird, morbid fixation with how exactly the end's going to occur. And now you're seeing a ton of books from a Christian perspective. Hal Lindsey, Rod Grams, I think his name is Rod Grams, uh, Jack Van Impey, and all these others. And they claim to have the key to decode the book of Revelation. I mean, they don't all agree with one another on different things, but they've got the clue. They know how to interpret it. This means that. The lotuses mean gas mask, and the, the, the lightning means thermonuclear thunderbolts, and, and all this other kind of stuff. Russia is Gog and Magog in Ezekiel, and some say that maybe Russia is China, or that, that Gog and Magog is China, and it goes on and on. But all of them are trying to say that we are in the very, very last moment of history. And for all I know, for all I know, they're right. But I'll also tell you this, I'm not going to take the time to read their books. I'll tell you why. I, I, I can appreciate what it's what it like to live in that kind of mindset, where you just are into the book of Revelation and you feel like you, you've got the key and you're so certain that you know the chart. And the war history is full of people who were certain that they had the chart to the end times. My first Christianity, we were saved in this, this church where they were really big on the end times. In fact, our pastor predicted that the world had to end by 1986. This is back in 1974. It had to end by, or 1975, it had to end by 1986, or maybe it was 85, or I forget. And he had his chart, he had the book of Daniel, the book of, Daniel, the book of Revelation, the whole bit. And we were so certain of it. We thought the Lord any second was going to come back. We knew, we knew that Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. <laughs> Anyone who talks like that has got to be the Antichrist. No. no, his name. You put the, name, they put the numbers together and it adds up to 666. And we knew there was, there was this, uh, a rumor about this giant computer being created in Europe called the Beast. And this was right during the time when they started using those scanners in the supermarket. Scanners. What's next? They're going to put it on our forehead. We knew it. 666 right there. It was coming any minute, any second. It's going to happen. And the 10 European heads of the European market, whatever, they were the 10-headed beasts in the book of Revelation and went on and on and on and on and on. And this kind of thinking is really coming back. Now, I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong, but there's a few things I want to say that call, to put it in perspective, and then I want to turn to, to the Gospel of Mark. One thing, the most important thing to know is this. It really was informative to me when I started studying church history and I found out that hardly anybody throughout church history believed what I thought was just the standard teaching of the church. That rapture idea, the tribulation, the mark of the beast, all that kind of stuff may in fact be correct, but the church throughout, the, throughout history hasn't seen it like that. There's always been a thousand different interpretations of the book of Revelation, but the primary understanding of the church throughout the ages is this. Most Christians throughout history have believed, reading the Bible, and they've interpreted it this way. That the church is, is to be about setting up the kingdom of God. And the church is to be about Christianizing the world. And when we have thoroughly Christianized the world, when the world has been thoroughly converted, when the law structures and the cultures have made Christ, been made Christian, then the Lord will come back and set up His kingdom here on earth what's sometimes called the millennium, which the church usually took to be a symbolic thing. There'd be a reign of peace, and after a certain amount of time, the devil would be unleashed, and then there'd be Armageddon and the war and the tribulation and all that. But the church on the whole believed that the next thing to occur in history was going to be the millennium. So you read, it's really fascinating. I, I know I'm a professor right now, but just follow me on this. I find it fascinating. 
You read Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton, the guy who discovered the law of gravity and the scientific revolution and all that. Brilliant guy. He spent the last part of his life doing a commentary on the book of Daniel. He was a good Christian. And he believed that the most important thing about his scientific discoveries, the most important thing, was that it was going to usher in the millennium. That through his scientific discoveries, through the modern invention of science, the kingdom of God was going to be built up here on earth. You read Jonathan Edwards, a great Puritan uh, thinker, and this is the way all the early Puritans, the, American, the founders of America, thought. He believed for sure that the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth was going to be set up in New Hampshire, Connecticut. He was sure of it. And he believed that through his preaching and the revivals that were happening, this was going to set up the kingdom, it would spread throughout America, and then it would take out the world, take over the world, and sometime within his lifetime, the Lord would return. In fact, he found a verse in the book of Revelation that he believed prophesied the invention of the compass. And that through the, through the invention of the compass, which made traveling between Europe and, and America so much easier, this is how part of how the millennium would be brought about. Charles Finney, who was the greatest, I think, the, the greatest revival preacher in all of church history, he believed that if America, through his preaching, through the revival that God was bringing about, when America finally gets rid of slavery, when America finally gets rid of racism, when, when America finally gets out of its alcohol problems, when America finally gets Christianized, God is going to set up his kingdom here on earth. He's going to rule the earth for a thousand years. And only after that period of time will the book of Revelation kick in and all that kind of stuff. They really believe that. Throughout the 19th century, with the exception of this Millerite movement, this is the view that Christians had. Now, all of that is to say this. It gives you a broader perspective to know that a lot of sincere, godly, and very smart Christians have interpreted this stuff in a very different way. Which doesn't mean that you shouldn't have an opinion about it, but it means that, that you should hold it a little bit tentative because you might be wrong about it. There's a second thing that causes me to just back off a little bit from the whole thing, and it's this. I always used to wonder, even when I was into this, uh, this idea that the end of the world was coming, we really believe this. It was so thick. We, we were so convinced the end of the world was coming that if you called somebody and they didn't answer the phone, you begin to wonder, did I miss it? Some of you know what I'm talking about. You, you were in the 70s. The way you'd witness is by asking people, are you ready for the rapture? They go, well, the, the what? Yeah, I'll have a rapture tonight. I'm going to a party. But, but we, we, we'd witness like that. And there's all these songs we used to sing. You know, these Keith Green songs, Life Was Filled With Guns and War. And everyone got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. What a downer song. It's sung to people for whom it's too late. You know, it's kind of a na-na-na-na-na song. You know, it's like, ah, you missed it. It's too late. Now you're going to get the mark of the beast. But we used to sing a lot of those songs and, and we were really into this. But even then I would wonder, I would wonder, why did God give us a book in the Bible that only we, at the very, very end of history, the last year of history or so, could really understand. Why did, it, why did God give a cryptogram to the Bible that everyone's been trying to figure out, but no one can figure out, but we, in the very last days, finally have the key, and we know what it's all about. Why would God do that? And would God wager very much on a person's ability to figure out this cryptogram? It used to bother me a lot. Let's look at Mark, chapter 13. In the light of all that, here's what I think we can say for sure, for sure about the end times. And that's all I got to say about that. Number one, no one knows. 
If Jesus says anything clearly, he says this, no one knows. No one knows when this is going to happen. And he's not saying no one knows because he's, he wants us to try to figure it out. He's not saying no one knows yet, but maybe Jack Vanipi will figure it out. Uh, no one knows yet, but maybe, no. No one knows on purpose. And the reason no one knows is because God doesn't want to tell anybody. Jesus himself doesn't know, the Bible says. The angels don't know. And this has some important implications. It means, it tells me, that I don't have to read books about, from people who claim to know, whether it's 1988 or 92 or 94 or whatever. Anyone who claims to know when the day or the hour is, or even is arguing in that direction, trying to come up with a rapture chart or whatnot, is claiming to know more than what Jesus knew, which tells me that they're on the wrong track. Paul says, avoid. In 2 Timothy, he says, avoid futile disputations. Avoid, avoid endless arguments. You don't have time for that kind of thing. You don't, it's a distraction to get involved in trying to figure out the details of things that we are not given to know. Paul says avoid it. And the main implication of this whole thing about not knowing is that it tells me that we are to just leave alone what God tells us to leave alone. We'll know when it happens. It'll be very clear when it happens. But in the meantime, let it go. Don't get involved in all sorts of esoteric, weird speculations about the whole thing, becoming obsessed with it, with it all. We just don't know this kind of stuff. The second thing about that is this. When we do this, and this is one of my, 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 my deep convictions about it, I really believe that the church, when, when, when people write books 1994, 1988, or whatever, or even when people just get too obsessed with this and start preaching doom all the time, we can undermine the credibility of Christianity. And we've got a world that we've got to win. We've got a culture we've got to save. And when you start lining up the, 19, the 1842, 1844, 1875, 1914, 1916, 1925, 1939, 1975, 1988, 1992, 1994, and so on and so on, we begin to look silly. And in the light of the fact that the Bible tells us we don't know, this is one area where I think we should just say we don't know. But... There's another thing I'm for sure of on the basis of this passage, and is this. Precisely because we don't know, we must be on guard. Jesus says, you don't know, therefore watch. Therefore be diligent. Therefore be ready. The reason why God doesn't tell us how and when and the details of when it's gonna, uh, how it's going to happen is because if we had that, we could say to ourselves, well, we got another three years, let's just kind of hang out. Now, I will wait until, you know, the last minute, and I'll get saved, you know, right beforehand. In the meantime, I'm going to party down. And Jesus says you can't do that because you don't know. And this is a powerful, powerful passage if we take it seriously. It says something to those of you here this morning that are not believers, and it says something very important to you here this morning that are believers, to non-believers. And I want you to hear me very clearly here. The thrust of what the Bible says about the end times is this. The world is going to have an end. Now that shouldn't surprise you. Even the scientists tell us that sooner or later the, the sun's going to burn out and suck up the whole solar system in itself and there's going to be a supernova. And when it happens, it's going to happen very, very quickly. The world is going to have an end. And you don't know when that end is going to be. That's what Jesus is saying. You don't know when that end is going to be. We are in the last days. 
We've been in the last days since Acts chapter 2 when Peter says the pouring out of the Spirit is the fulfillment of the prophecy about the last days. The last days simply means in the Bible the final chapter. God has a story He's writing. Follow me here on this. God has a story He's writing in world history. A plan that He's carrying out. It concerns the whole of world history and it concerns your life individually. And what we know from the Word of God is this. We're in the final chapter. The last thing that God's going to do before He decides to bring this story to an end is build up His church and save as many people as possible. And we are in those days which tells you, you here this morning that are not believers, that you can't take for granted anything. You don't know how much time you have left. You don't know how much time you have left in your own life. You could get killed in a car wreck on the way home. And we don't know how long the earth has to go before God finally decides to wrap this whole show up. That shouldn't be a hard sell to you. It shouldn't be a hard thing to believe. Because you know already how volatile the world is. Sometimes people get this illusion that, we, that everything's so peaceful and everything's so safe. It's going to always be like this. But you know that the world is not like that. A couple of years ago, out of nowhere, all of a sudden a guy who a lot of people hadn't heard of before, Saddam Hussein, Got the headlines in the news, invaded a little place that most people hadn't heard of before called Kuwait. And we had a significant war there. And if Saddam Hussein had been just a little bit crazier, and the Russians had been a little bit more aligned on his side, and if he had possessed a, a nuclear warhead, this thing could have turned out very different than it, than it in fact turned out. The world actually is a very volatile place. What I think is the biggest threat to world peace in the coming couple decades is this. Do you know how easy it would be for one terrorist group who, does, who has nothing to lose, if they got a nuclear warhead to totally upset the world powers, one Islamic terrorist group or any terrorist group, and out of nowhere, bam, we lose half of New York, the whole world is thrown into a topsy-turvy. At that point, it would be very easy for a person in, in, in the right position to rise to power and start leading the world, and that's what the Bible calls the Antichrist, the lawless one. Now, I don't know when that's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen. I have no clue about that, but I do know that sooner or later it is going to happen, and you can't take for granted a moment it could happen like that. You want to know how fast nightmare occurs? Just ask any Jew who went through the Holocaust. One day they're living in comfort. The next minute the whole race is being shifted off into, into concentration camps. Just ask the people down in Oklahoma how long it takes to go from peace and safety into a nightmare. It happens like that. And the Bible says that that's how it's going to end. The second coming for the believer is good news. Because it means God's going to set up his rule on earth and God is going to vanquish all of his enemies. And that is good news to the believer because we watch for it. We're ready for it. We expect it. To the unbeliever, it's called the day of judgment. And I'm not trying to give a scare tactic here, but I'm trying to be loving and honest. If you were in a car going down a hill and you were going to hit a brick, a, a, a brick fence, I would be unloving if I didn't tell you. And so I'm telling you here, just because it's true, the world isn't going to last forever. We're in a train, we're picking up speed, and the only thing we know for sure is we're going to hit a brick wall. And you need to know about that, and the Bible says you need to get ready for it. If you have a heart to believe, a heart to be, receive Christ as your Savior, do not put it off till tomorrow. You don't have any time to buy. That's the thrust of what Jesus is saying when he says no one knows. But when it comes, it's going to happen suddenly. When the Master returns, it's going to happen like that. It's going to be quick. The second thing to believers is this. Talking now to believers, here's what the verse means to us. Jesus says, you don't know when the master returns, and so you need to be diligent. You need to live 
And this is the main thrust of it. The Bible doesn't write anything to satisfy morbid curiosities, but it writes a whole lot in order to get us to live a certain way. And this is the whole thrust of the Bible's teaching about the end times. We are to live like today was our last. We don't know when the end will happen. It could be tonight. It could be in a thousand years. We don't know. But we are to live like the Apostle Paul lived, expecting the Lord to come back at any time. We are to live like Jesus taught here, expecting the the Master to return at any time. And it means this. We don't have any time to play church. We don't have any time to squabble about the color of carpet, to squabble about little details here and there. We don't have any time to sit on the fence. We don't have any time to play Christianity. We were called to do a ministry. We're called to carry out a work, and there's a lot of work that needs to be done, and we don't have time to get involved in speculation about the details of things about which we know absolutely nothing. We're called to do something, and the one thing that's going to matter is not how, how far ahead of time did you figure out how the details were going to work out. The one thing that matters when all is said and done is what have you done for the kingdom? And there's a whole lot that needs to be done. And here we have a lot to learn from the Christians of the last century. God hasn't given up on this world yet. He loves this world, the Bible says. One of the most negative aspects of this this apocalyptic thinking, the Millerite movement and stuff, is it led Christians in this century to give up on trying to change things in this world. In my earliest form of Christianity, we just thought, we didn't care about poverty, we didn't care about racism, we didn't care about justice, we didn't care about anything. All we knew was that we were going to be raptured and we wanted to grab someone's hand on the way up. We literally believed that the world was going to hell in a handbasket, so what difference does it make whether you do any good in it or not? See, that is so wrong-headed. We are not going to be able to carry out our work perfectly until the Lord comes back. But that doesn't mean that we're not to be setting the stage for the Lord coming back. And here Charles Finney was right. The Bible calls us to be about one thing. All of us to be about one thing because we're all ministers. And what we're to be about is bringing back kingdom for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're to be about taking what was belonging to the kingdom of darkness and bringing it to the kingdom of light. And we do that every time we lead a person to Jesus Christ. We're winning back, kingdom, uh, we're winning back territory for the kingdom of God. We do it every time. We pray for a person for physical healing. We do it every time we pray for a person and bring emotional healing. We do it every time we restore a marriage. That's all bringing back territory for Jesus Christ. But according to the Bible, we're to be concerned not just about individuals, but about the world. Being involved in the world. Paul involved in guerrilla warfare tactics. And our goal is to take over the world. And we don't have any illusions that we're going to be able to do it before the Lord comes back, but we're to be setting up that until the Lord comes back. We're to be about showing the world, for example, how people, black and white, and all different races can begin to love one another and live in harmony. They can't do it. We need to show them how. And we're to be concerned about racism in our culture, and about justice in our culture, and about poverty in our culture, and about unwed mothers in our culture, and about all the other things that the devil has foisted on people in our culture. We're to be concerned about that, to be doing something about that. Read the Minor Prophets. It's all on that very theme. We're not just to give up on the world and say, well, we're just going to get raptured and leave it. The Lord's coming back at any time, but until that time, we have got to find whatever our hands can find to do and say whatever our mouth can find to say and think and write books and do whatever we can find to do, whether it's dressing up as a clown outfit or whatever, in order to win back the world for Jesus Christ because, folks, it belongs to Him. It belongs to Him.
Who's the Antichrist? When's the end going to happen? I don't know. But yet, last week I got to pray with somebody who got a lot of emotional healing. And so when all this occurs, she's going to be more ready than before. That's what matters. For believer here this morning, I encourage you to do this. I encourage you to make a covenant that Jonathan Edwards made with himself, and that was that he was going to live each day like it was his last. Love your kids today like it was your last day. Love your wife. Love your husband today like it was your last day. Take your Christianity seriously as though tonight was the last night, because for all you know, it just might be. Live life passionately. And you know what? You're more alive when you do that. You're more alive when you don't take life for granted. For you here this morning that are not a believer, I just want to give this word to you. Don't leave here in that condition because you don't know if you're going to drive home safe and you don't know how long the world's going to last. Accept the Lord while there's still time to find the Lord. You don't have forever. And there'll be some people up here who would love to pray with you. I know it's hot, but they'd love to pray with you. And it's just a prayer away. Getting into the shelter of safety of our Lord Jesus Christ so that now the end of the world isn't scary, ugly news for you. Now it can be good news. It can be good news. You look forward to it. I can't wait. Father, I thank you, Lord God, that you have put it upon us to look forward to your return. And, and Lord, we do that. We, we look forward. We pray the prayer of the Bible, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until that time, Lord, I pray that you'd be about making us good stewards, Lord, giving us the sense of urgency that your Bible calls us to have with regard to spreading the gospel. And Lord God, for those here, here this morning that don't know you, I pray, Lord God, that you'd pull them forward by your spirit, even right now. Be pulling them forward to receive you as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.